Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Wednesday morning. Uh, and I'll try to do one today. Uh, yesterday I did an unusual one with uh, an interview with Gabe Aronson, but um, I'm sticking to the regular format. And I see, of all the names I was sent, the best one for me is Deshar Fryam, who probably most of you never heard of, and that's exactly why I want to do it. Uh, before I go on, today's uh, podcast is being sponsored by the Hiller, Hiller family. Joseph Heller, in memory of his grandparents, whose names are Leo and Rita uh, Heller, or Leif Bar David and Rezo Dvarbas Moshe Aram, hoped in Nisham Mohammed Aliyah. And Mr. Heller and I have been corresponding for some time now. I'm glad to have this opportunity to pay tribute to the memory of his grandparents. As I said before, the Nishamas Mohammed Aliyah. We're looking for a sponsor all the time. And appreciate it. And now, without any further ado, I said I was going to share fry him, which I'm perfectly aware. For most people out there, you hear these names of foreign books. It's as you put any two words together. You know what I mean? Shalme David. You know the 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 Doge Shlomo. You know, you you just to put two words together. But it's more than that. Some there are many farm uh, that never get any uh, traction. And then there's some to get a lot of traction. And then there's some in the middle. The Shafram's in the middle, I would say. One of the big rabbis, Poskin. But not so many people heard of it. At least that's my impression. I'm talking about somebody who was a rabbi in Poland in the 1600s, like I've done many times. Uh, in um, Actually, I think the years are like something like 1616 to 1678. I believe that's his years. Uh, which means he didn't live that long, right? That'd be uh, in his early 60s. His mom is not old. And as we'll see, he died from coronavirus. No, it's from an from a, a epidemic, a pandemic, which was so common in the old days when nobody knew anything about real medicine. We're talking about the 17th century now. Um, and again, like many figures I've dealt with, and that's why none of these people are cookie cutters. Uh, everybody has a unique uh, life. But if you live in the 17th century in Eastern Europe particularly, your life is going to be usually divided into two halves, A and B. The first half will be great, and then will come to disasters, and then you have to try to put your life back together again the best you can in the second half. And that happened many times before, for example, the shock I mentioned. And today I'm talking about somebody whose name was Ephraim Cohen, Rabbi Ben Ephraim Cohen, who was a real Cohen, but then I mean he's supposed to have big yichus, he claims, they all claim, like I'm a coin too, everybody claims I have documents that take me back to our own. Nobody really has documents like that. That's baloney. Uh, and where are they? They got lost. You know, everybody writes the same thing in their farm. I had them, but they're lost. Um, get one thing straight. None of us, nobody today, has actual proof that, I mean, documented things from base and, you know, down the line that they're Jewish. You know what I said? Nobody. Um, we go by... Mesoras. So, you know, you can possibly trace yourself, for example, back to Rashi. Such a thing is possible. But not past that. But you'll say, well, but everybody knows Rashi goes back to, uh, you know, whoever, Biochanan. Well, as soon as you tell me everybody knows, you've abandoned the world of documentation and you're in another uh, world. So, same thing. Ephraim McCohen was very famous for always saying he's a big Miochus in the Kohanim. He always writes in this farm like that. But, um, you, know, you can't prove it. Now, putting that aside, here's our hero, who was basically born, I mean, no, it doesn't get better than this, he was basically born in Lithuania, in, in, in uh, Vilna, and uh, grows up there. So that's the 1616, so we're talking about the 1620s, 1630s, these are the golden age of the Polish Jewry, and Vilna, Lithuania, is part of the kingdom of Poland that I referred to a thousand times already. If you've been following my podcast, you know a little bit, 
And suddenly, you know, there was once this huge Polish empire that no longer exists, and that's where the Jews were uh, headquartered, the Ashkenazi Jews, in the 15th, 16th, 17th, 1800s, 1900s. And um, in the 15th, 16th, 1700s, they had like a, as far as Torah scholarship is concerned, that kind of thing, you had a golden age. And he was a part, main part of it. And uh, he came from the right family. It's all the learning then, maybe now, not so much now then, was very elitist. And you had to be born most of the time the right family, married the right girl and all the rest of it. And uh, he came from such a big yichus. Uh, no question about that. His his grandfather, I remember this, was named Ephraim Fish. It sounds funny to us today, but some of you, you know, there are people named Fish, right? Ephraim Fish. I'm talking about in the 15, early 1600s. Here's the point I wanted to mention about his grandfather. We make a big deal today about marrying, I mean, about people. When you have a baby, you know, give a Jewish name. Uh, and a Jewish name, you, and I believe this also, you know, you know, Avram, Yitzhak, Yaakov, Moshe, Adam, Shalom, Basar, Rivka, Rachaleah, you know, those kind of names. It's a power, whatever. Uh, on the other hand, it's also true, as everybody knows, that we have these names like Sprinzel, Plinzel, and Tinsel, you know. Uh, and what I mean to say is, like, is what do you do with non-biblical Jewish names? Uh, so the only point I want to mention like this, our hero's grandfather was a famous rabbi. He eventually, he was in Brisk, and then he moved to Yerushalayim. He was the Ashkenazi rabbi in Yerushalayim in the 1600s. Uh, so wait a minute. He was married to a daughter of the Marshal. Like I told you, it's all who you marry. It's all elite families. And frying fish. The, the grandfather of our hero, what was the name of his wife, the daughter of the Marshal? Marshal was the biggest from guy in Poland. The biggest Rosh Hashiva, Rob. You know, I think I spoke about him. His daughter's name was Valentina. Now go name your daughter today Valentina. <laughs> right? Valentina Schwartz. Valentina Katz. Valentina Cohn. You know, people don't do it. So I'm just trying to, that was a Jewish name. So I'm trying to tell you, the from is still the from have funny history when it comes to names. Uh, I'm still not crazy if some of my kids give their names, you know, cra- these new crazy names. But nevertheless, I just want to put it out there, you know. Rashi had a daughter named uh, Belasis. The Marshal has a daughter named Valentina. It's a funny, you know, it's just interesting. Let's put it that way. But from, of course, they were. And our hero, Fram Cohn, ends up, not only, you know, growing up in the right family in, in Vilna, in the right place, and becomes a member of the Basin, no less. A diner in the Basin. Uh, at the age of 20, you know, which means he's a young genius, uh, plus he's got the right connections. Who else is on that basin at the age of 20, you know, on that remarkable basin, which was very heavy on the IQ? The Shach, uh, you know, some other, Aaron Kadnever, you know, the, the, the Munich Shmuel, you know, the, some, <laughs> let's put it this way, and the Rosh Basin was the Chalkas uh, Machokek. He had some heavy hitters in the golden age of Poland in the 1630s, 1640s, if a Shiloh came to that basin, that's really something. But I want to tell you something. So our hero married uh, uh, a, a girl with a regular name, <laughs> right, Rachel. Her grandfather, that's his wife's grandfather, listen to this closely, was a uh, famous mystic in Poland way back when, in the 1500s, named Eliyahu Balshem. Now, Balshem simply means it's a certain type of alternative medicine doctor, right? What we would call today, this is the wrong term to use, but I'll use it, witch doctor, you know. Uh, maybe not witch doctor exactly, but alternative medicine, you know, herbs and things. Like you find people today that are into alternative medicines type. So this is Rebel Yov of Helm, that's the grandfather of our hero's wife. I'm, sa- I'm telling you all this for a reason. Who was a big rabbi in Poland in the 1500s, a Tom of the Marshal, and so forth. And, um, you know, he was a rov in, uh, in, in, in Helm, I think, actually in Bells, uh, in the 1500s. And uh, let's put it this way. He's the guy that made the golem, okay? Which, for some reason or another, was attributed to his contemporary, the morale. Everybody's heard the story about the morale and the golem. But for some reason, it got submished. To the degree that there's any truth to it at all, we have no, uh, you know, outside verification, but let's say... If we're going by Makoros, by uh, uh, from sources, genuine sources. So uh, they're known for the morale. But this Eliyahu Baal Shem, the Chacham Tzvi, and Yaakov Emden, it's a father and son, 
they write about it. It's very famous in the Chacham Tzvi. I think I mentioned a couple weeks ago when I talked to the Chacham Tzvi. They write about the question of whether you can count a golem for a minion and things like that, meaning, you know, Adam Shinivali, they say for Yitzhiro. And Chacham Tzvi and Yaakov Emden are the grandchildren of our hero today, of the Sharfraim, Ephraim Kohn. So they are talking about, right, the, their ancestor. The, so let, let me just clarify. The Chacham Tzvi is the grandson of our hero, Ephraim Kohn, the Sharfraim. The Sharfraim's wife is the granddaughter of Elio Balshem, Elio of Chelm. So Elio is the guy who's supposed to, have, the, the, who, who, according to tradition, made a golem. So when the Chacham Tzvi writes about a golem, he says, oh, you mean like my grandfather did. Now, literally, he means his, his grandmother's grandfather. Just, you know, where else are you going to hear this stuff? Right? right? That's what it means, his grandmother's grandfather. Uh, and therefore, he discussed in the Shalosu's Chacham Tzvi, and the Chacham Tzvi's son, Yaakov Emdid, also writes about that, discusses the same question as and Shuvah. And once again, he says, oh, you mean that was made like my grandfather? Now, again, in his case, he means his great-grandmother's grandfather, right? But it was in the family tree, you know, uh, uh, about the golem. And Yaakov Emden is the one who says that the family tradition is that the golem went amok, the golem went berserk, and therefore his great-great-great-grandfather, whatever, you, you do it, Elio Chalm, like, de-golemed him, you know what I mean? He pulled out the petek, or forgot, forgot exactly what he did, and betavla afrit, and went back to being offered. This is the basis of all the Maiselach that you hear about the golem. So uh, it's this interesting that our hero, that's his wife, he married the granddaughter of that famous person. That's the reason I'm mentioning it. Um, now, here you have a guy born in 1616 until, let's say, 1636. So the first 30 years of his life is great. He's living in the right place. Vilna is a pretty town. I was there. It's a pretty city. It's an important Jewish community. The basin was like a heavy-duty learning. You can just imagine... The yeshivas, the kolos, whatever they had in those days over there. You can imagine a based in session where they're uh, adjudicating cases uh, day and night. I'm, I'm talking about the Chalkas Mechagek, the Shach, the um, Munishmul, and people like that. So it's a very, let me put it this way if you like learning, if that's your nature, it's like a Ganated. And actually, until the year 1648, everything was great. So for the first 32 years of his life, Kivaldic. And I'm sure he imagined, I'm sure he imagined that this is the way it'll always be. He'll go for another 30, 40 years and he'll have the good luck to live in a good community and with big learning, etc., 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 and life will be great. And then things changed. In 1648 came the um, Chmelnitsky uprising, the, the Kazakh massacres. Uh, I actually, you know, I, I started this, I told my son, started this um, website now, YouTube, excuse me, for my lectures. And um, let me see now. I'm pulling up the site. What did he, he didn't put it up yet. Of the Poles and the Jews and the Shabtai Tzvi. I'll tell him to put up in one week from today. Today's the 11th of Sibon. In a week, uh, in 10 days, 9 days, is the 20th of Sibon. 20th of Sibon came to be the day that was celebrated or commemorated is a better word in Poland of the Kazakh massacres for a bunch of reasons. Maybe next week I'll talk about it. Uh, but if you're interested in the subject whatsoever, so a number of years ago, I did a ser- uh, like a five or six part uh, lecture series with uh, videos and uh, dog and pony shows, the whole uh, nine yards with the PowerPoint. And I remember it was called Kazakhs and Jews. I'll see if they can put it up on the site this week. If you go to Jewish History, the name of my YouTube site is Jewish History with Rabbi Dr. David Katz. Again, it's called Jewish History with Rabbi Dr. David Katz. You are all listening to podcasts. If any of you want to see the videos with the uh, PowerPoints and stuff like that, which is better than the podcast, but not everybody has that you know, inclination. Uh, if you go to the website, Again, I mean by website, I, I mean the YouTube site. This is a brand new YouTube site called Jewish History with Rabbi Dr. David Katz. So I hope um, I'll tell him to put up in the near future the Kazakh stuff. And then 
if you watch that, you will go into Chafsivan armed with uh, knowledge. Uh, and so our hero, Ephraim Kohn, uh, lives then. So you might say like this, well then, Oive, the life turned uh, bad in 1648. Not really, because Poland, and I'm talking once again about the old Poland, was a huge empire that covered all of Eastern Europe. So if you know anything about the map, and here I can't help, I can't educate you in geography. You know, you've got to just learn this stuff on your own. And particularly, historical geography. Which is fascinating to me, but I don't know, it might be boring to you. Uh, but the Poland at that time, if you go online and you Google Poland in 1648, or something like that, you'll see maps of this huge area. And uh, Lithuania, or Vilna, was part of that. And it's all the way up in the northwest. So you know what that means, right? In the upper part and the left side of the map. And the Kazakh stuff was on the southeast. So the bottom line is that there were terrible massacres in 1648 and 1649, but not in, not in Lithuania. It didn't get that far. Now, I'm not exactly right about that. If you want to get very detailed, a couple of raids did get that far, but not really to where he was. So the Jews where uh, Meshach Ephraim lived were scared, but um, uh, the Kazakhs didn't quite get there. Now, I just want to tell you something. I don't know if you're interested in this or not, but uh, it doesn't matter. I'll just say it anyway. Uh, because it's Chafsivan coming around. Uh, there's a new book that just came out, and a friend of mine sent it to me, the guy from the uh, Sepharim Chatter, a new uh, acquaintance, by Professor Adam Teller. Who's a, I, know, I know him. He's a very good historian. And Tom Chacham, but he's a very, very good historian. And he uh, apparently wrote this book, which sent me online, but you can buy it. And I do recommend it if you're interested in history. And the name of the book is Rescue the Surviving Souls, The Great Jewish Refugee Crisis of the 17th Century. I know about this stuff, but he's putting it all together. And when, I read a couple chapters, and it's very good. Uh, if you're at all interested in sort of thing. And uh, if what I'm saying today is of interest to you, and you want to get a historical context, I do recommend that book by Professor Teller. It's uh, like brand new. Put out by Princeton Press. And what he does is discusses the consequences of the gigantic violent stuff that happened uh, starting in 1648 and and then extending afterwards and the uh, terrible consequences it has in Jewish life that I'll discuss with you very shortly. And the reason I'm mentioning is because the Kazakh massacres were in the southeast primarily. Our hero was in the northwest. But once Poland got involved in these wars. They couldn't suppress the Cossacks, uh, uh, you know, because uh, the Cossacks dealt heavy blows to the Poles, and then the Poles dealt heavy blows to the Cossacks. It's like a very bloody business. And then Poland was seen as vulnerable, and it's very dangerous in the international environment to be seen as a vulnerable country. And uh, all the neighbors of Poland started attacking. Not, not at the same time, not overnight, but by the 1650s. Uh, this happened. Believe it or not, Sweden invaded. Prussia, which was tiny at that time, invaded. Uh, the Turks got involved in the war. It was a terrible business. And our hero, uh, Vilna was attacked uh, in the second round, 1656. So, if you want to be technical about it, for Ephraim Cohn, our hero, everything was okay till the age of 40. From 1656 to 1656. Until uh, he reached 40 years old. But from the time he's 32 years old, you know that disaster could strike at any time because Poland is under major crisis and they're being invaded right and left and maybe they didn't hit your town. But as soon as the Cossack massacres uh, began, the whole country got flooded with uh, poor refugees running away from the massacres. People lost everything. The Cahillas were strained, overstrained with the Tzedakah problems. Imagine what the um, Tzedakah organizations such as we have in Baltimore, for example, one called Avasi Throw. And I'm sure wherever you live, you have similar items. You know, and I'm a rabbi, I have my own charity fund to have to deal with. And, uh, you know, charity funds and things like that are meant for normal times. Uh, you know, this person has a problem with this, and that person with a mortgage, and this one or that, and, you know, things can happen. That's what you call the normal problems of everyday life. But then comes coronavirus, and everybody's out of a job, 
and uh, you know uh, the financial crisis becomes huge, the local organization is usually not capable of handling that. So similar thing happened seventeenth century. You had your Pidyon Shavuyan committee usually. You had your Achnasas Archem, your uh, you know Tzedaka funds, your Hegdish things, and that's for regular times. But after sixteen forty eight. These things got overstrained and overwhelmed with the huge number of refugees and slaves and stuff like that that happened. That's more or less what his book is about. I know about this one beforehand, but you don't. And if you're interested and somebody put a lot of the information together, you find it in the book, a Professor Teller, so I'm, who collects a lot of sources. So I'm mentioning that if you live in Vilna, 1656 is the bad year because the Russians invaded. That time the Kazakhs and Russians are two separate groups. It's the Mos- it was called the Tsar of Moscow. And a Russian army invaded Vilna and uh, killing everybody and all the Jews ran away. And all, and all the rabbis, like the Shach and uh, the uh, Shah Ephraim, Ephraim Khan and the others, and the Munish Shmolde, everybody fled. Uh, and so uh, you have uh, the, the great refugee crisis of the late 1650s, which is a Zach. And what's really fascinating from the point of view of this podcast is a lot of these big famous rabbis were refugees and they all ran away and that's why you find all these big Lithuanian rabbis or Polish rabbis end up moving to other countries and, uh, and dying there. And that's what happened. So here, in our case, I mean, just give me an example. I just, the Shach, who I spoke about earlier, was from Vilna and he expected to live his whole life in Vilna. And the end is he died in some stunkin' little place in, uh, in Bohemia, in, in the Czech Republic, which I read in online like a week ago, that um, that little town is like investing money to build up the Shach's Kever. Obviously, they want to become a Jewish tourism site. Nothing wrong with that. That's, le- that's legitimate. Uh, what's the Shach doing in the Czech Republic, you know? Because they all ran away from the Chmielnitsky massacres, or rather, that's incorrect, from the Cossack massacres. No, that's incorrect also from the Russian massacres. <laughs> okay? And so in the case of our hero, he flees west, like they all did, with his uh, daughter, and uh, I forget if he had a son or not, and his son-in-law. Now, I spoke about this a couple weeks ago in the Kachan Tzvi, so I don't want to repeat the whole story over again about how they thought his son was killed by the Cossacks, and he gave his daughter Heather to get married, and she wouldn't listen, and then the husband showed up. I'll put that aside. He fled, and he ran away to Moravia. Now, again, I know most of you don't know Moravia. I spoke it about a bunch of times, because whenever we deal with some famous rabbi who was in Moravia, like Nicholsburg and place like that, which there were a lot of big rabbis on him, like the Maral and the Temaxenic and others. So Moravia is like, you know, going west, it's south of Bohemia. These names don't mean anything to you. But it's a whole province in which they had all these small Jewish communities. And uh, this part of the Austrian Empire... At the time I'm talking about, in the 1650s, the Austrian emperor at that time, Ferdinand III, was, even though all the Austrian rulers hated the Jews, but he was relatively uh, rational in economic sense. And he said, the Jews coming into Moravia will help build up the economy, and I need taxes. And it's a whole Gantz Misa. If you're interested, you could read Professor Teller's book, The Moravian Communities. The guy wouldn't let the Jews in. The emperor insisted that they go in. There was a lot of back and forth in the government stuff. The bottom line is, sparing you all the details, the Jews, Jewish refugees, moved all over the place in Moravia, which got full of these Polish uh, Jews. Like America became full of uh, Holocaust survivor refugees after the Holocaust, similar type thing, including some big rub on him. You know, like Ron Cutler, people like that all fled from Europe, came in the Holocaust and post-Holocaust. That same thing happened in Moravia. It's just very interesting. Cities for stunken little towns which had 20, 30, 40 families that I was in Nicholsburg with my group last year, and many places like that, Trebich and uh, Ungersbrod and all uh, places you never heard of, Austerlitz, whatever, Kostelitz, Austerlitz, all of a sudden became filled with refugees, number one, and number two, Gidoli Ador. So to use American uh, example, I live in Maryland. Let's say, for example, Hagerstown is a nothing little community, Jewish-wise, I don't know how many miles from Baltimore, Hagerstown or Havre de Grace, all of a sudden, here comes Rabbi Shafat, you know, uh, the Satmar Rebbe, uh, you know, lives in Hagerstown now as the rabbi, and, uh, you know, the Rabbi Cutler is the rabbi in Havre de Grace, and, uh, you know, somebody like that 
you know what I'm saying, somebody really, behind Brisker comes and now the rabbi in Ocean City. I mean, it was a crazy uh, world over there because they're all running away from the violence that was in, taking place in Poland. So that's what happened to our hero. At the age of 40, he has to run away and try to get it, put his feet on the ground. And he goes to Moravia. He goes from this town to this town, finally gets a job to be, he's accepted to be a rabbi in this place because after all, he's 40 years old and a Godel Ador, he clearly is in the sense that he was on the base in Vilna, you know? Imagine if a guy came to be a rabbi in Baltimore, he said, what's your credentials? Well, I sat with, uh, like, uh, what's the name? Uh, rabbi Gustman, you know? I sat on the base in Vilna with Chaim Zagrzynski. Okay, <laughs> I guess you can be the rabbi in our show, you know? I imagine you know how to learn. <laughs> you see? So, that's the situation that happened over there. And so as a result, he ended up in this community, that community. So imagine we're talking about the years 40 years old to uh, 48 years old, something like that, 47 years old. From 1656 when he ran away to ended up getting a job in 1657 in a community there. He's here till 1663. Well, what's, and, then he, and then he flees. What are you fleeing from in 1663? I mean, this is Austrian Empire. It's not Poland. There's no violence going on over there. What is what is happening? Uh, in order to know this, you have to know all kind of obscure little junk about the continuous, constant wars of the 1600s. And um, here we have what we would call the Austro-Turkish War of the 1660s. I kid you not. And at that time, now this is important to our story, and I wish I could show you a map in front of me, but if you're the type that cares about this, just go Google a map of Central Europe in the 1660s or something like that, and, uh, or 1648 even, and uh, you'll see that at that time, about a third of Europe is occupied by the Ottoman Turkish Empire, by the, by the Muslims. And the Turks had conquered Hungary, or most of Hungary, like Budapest and places like that. It wasn't Budapest, it was just Buda, uh, uh, which is incredible, okay? And uh, that means that the Turkish frontier, the, the frontier of the Muslim Empire, is uh, in western Hungary, not far from Vienna. This is, it was during this time that uh, the capital of Hungary switched from Budapest to Pressburg. That's how Pressburg became the capital, because the Muslims occupied Budapest, so you couldn't use that as the capital of Hungary, the Christian part. And so whatever the Christian part of Hungary was, they had to move the capital all the way to the edge of Hungary, which you and I call Pressburg or Bratislava today. Um, that's how it became a hush of a town. So what I'm trying to say is, Central Europe was a frontier, and Vienna was not very far from the frontier. And uh, Moravia, the province I'm speaking about, which is north of Vienna, is literally very close to the Muslim frontier. If you're close to a Muslim frontier, as we know even today, you're going to have constant violence. And there were continual wars and raids between the Muslims and the Christians all the way through the 15 and 1600s. And if you were unlucky, you could go and be subject of a raid by the Turks or their allies, and be taken as a prisoner, and then be a, a slave. And you're sold as a slave. It happened all the time. And if you're over 40 years old, they probably kill you, because you can't get much money for that. And so, uh, our hero was the rabbi in Ungersbrod, which doesn't mean anything to you, but it's a, it's a uh, once upon a time, a well-known community in, uh, I would say, the eastern part of Moravia, Bottom line is it's not that far away from the Turkish army frontier. And a war broke out between the two sides because uh, the Christian part of Hungary was part of the Austrian Empire. Did I confuse you? The rulers of Austria were also the rulers of Hungary, the Christian part of Hungary, and also the rulers of Bohemia, of Bohemia Moravia. This is where it is. So uh, a war broke out. It's called the Montecuccoli War because the Turks invaded with a gigantic army and... It should have been, they should have been victorious, but the Austrian general was uh, the famous, one of the famous generals in European history, uh, Count Montecuccoli. He's Italian, obviously, and uh, he defeated them. He surprised everybody by beating them.
But meanwhile, there are a lot of rays back and forth. So specifically, if you want to get down to the totally angle level of, uh, of uh, detail, which is necessary for our story, there was a mini-invasion of Moravia by a Turkish army in 1663. Now, they didn't get too far, but they did trouble. And I can totally hear that if you're the Shire Fryam, and you're now in your late 40s, he said, here we go again. I'm not hanging around like there was a couple years ago when the, when the Russians invaded Vilna. I've been through all that junk. No, thank you. I don't need the refugee junk. And so as soon as he hears about a war breaking out, he hits the road and runs away to Prague, which was much farther, deeper in the Austrian Empire, far away from the front. And, uh, and he stays in Prague for a couple years. Uh, now let me say this. The Shire Prime is the name of his safer, which is a Shalos and Shuba safer. I'll talk about it a little bit later. And became very famous. Well, I, famous among those who know. Cognoscenti. And has very, 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 very interesting Shilas. And me, myself, and I, I'm always interested. In fact, one of the, one of the first times I came across the Shire Fry many, many years ago is because I'm a Cohen. He's a Cohen. And he is part of a, a group of people. I'm thinking of writing this up as an article for college. Who in the 17th century and early 18th century, you have a lot of very interesting Shilas about Tumas Kohanim. I told you, I'm a Cohen. And these have to do with questions about um, Tumas Ohel. And it's all in the Shulchan Aruch in your day. If, uh, if you're not a Kohen, you're probably not interested in this at all. It's all, believe it or not, in Hilchas Avelis, like Shin, I don't know, Tes, Shin Ayin, Shin Ayin Alf, those areas in, in Yerodea. And uh, you have to know Oholos, you know what I mean? What can I tell you? I can't help it. And there's all these rules that, you know, if somebody dies in one room, does it extend, does the Tumah go to another room? And depending on the situation, it may be that, um, let me put it this way, if I live in a row house, depending on various factors, I repeat, depending on various factors, it could turn out that if somebody dies at the end of the row house block, knows I'm in row house number one, and somebody dies in row house number 12, all part of one big long row house, meaning one long building, uh, and I'm a coin, I might have to leave. You know, depending, halakhically, depending on how the tumor works. And um, I remember that Shire Frame has a famous question when he was in Prague, the way the houses worked out, there was this guy, he was an old man, a coin, and he had to go out in the winter in freezing weather because I think the guy died on, the guy who died died on Shabbos, different, he couldn't do the, the, the burial till later, and, uh, it's like Hanus Nefashis. I'm talking about in terms of health. And, you know, it was a whole bummer. And it's a very fascinating kind of question. It all goes back to, like, the Trumas Adeshin writes about this in the 15th century in, uh, where he lived in Austria, also in Austria, and it's in the, in the Trumas Adeshin stuff is in the Shulchan Aruch, in the Ramah. But anyway, like I said before, if you're not coming, it probably doesn't matter to you. But what's he doing with the... Why, why is he dealing with questions in Prague? He lived for a while in Prague. And then he did something very, very interesting to me. And that is, and this is very Jewish. I told you, there were two, there was a war going on, continuously. And let me just lay by way of a, a general background. You had two sides, the Austrians and the Turks. And when I say the Austrians, the Austrians controlled the edge of Hungary and Bohemia and Austria and all that stuff. And the Turks controlled a third of Europe, what we call today Hungary and to the east. Hungary, Romania... Serbia, Greece, Bulgaria, huge area, Albania, huge area. Now, uh, the Turks were always threatening the Austrians. And it was the Turkish goal, the jihad, you know, the jihad, that they would conquer Austria and then conquer Europe and then turn everything Muslim. That was the, the official plan of the Turks. And uh, it was possible they might have pulled it off. And... In the 1660s, 1670s, and 1680s, and 1690s. So the last four decades of the 1600s, it was a gigantic set of wars between the two sides, which shifted this way and shifted that way. By the time it's over, the Christians won. Okay? Uh, but a lot of wars. And basically, first A won, and then B won. 
First the Turks won and broke through and they came very, very close to conquering Vienna. And then that would open their way into all of Germany and the rest of Europe. Now in the 1680s. And then it turned around and the Christians won and drove the Turks out of whole Hungary. You know what I say? Out of the whole Hungary. That's how Hungary became a, a, a non-Turkish country. And this is why Hungary today doesn't want to let any Turkish refugees in. Okay? They say, we had that already. Thank you very much. So, if you're Jewish, this area is not exactly the greatest place to be necessarily. Because of a war zone. That's my point. But our hero is living smack in the middle of this. See, here you are in the 1660s. And he started out in Vilna, ended up in uh, Ungarish, in, in, in Moravia, now ran away to Prague. This is how life works in those days. Because you're trying to stay away, you know, from the war zone. And uh, uh, what should I tell you? He's, he's looking for, let me put it this way. You're a world-class Gon, but you're not a Stella. And he got a offer to be the rabbi in Budapest, or Buddha, to be exact, which is on the other side. It's, it's, it's in the Turkish zone. Now, the Turks don't care. You're not an Austrian, you're not a thing, you're a Jew. <laughs> you know? And so Buddha was, um, what shall I say? Uh, at that time, they called it Ofen, Ofen. If you look in the old farm, Uban, Ofen, Buddha. Uh, if you're, um, uh, you know, if you're Jewish, you, you say there's a Jewish Kehillah here, there's a Jewish Kehillah there. I don't care whether the, 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 the country is, uh, you know, uh, this war side or that war side. I'm Jewish. You know, like a rabbi, he's neutral. He doesn't care which one wins. And from a certain perspective, it's actually safer, he thought, in the Turkish Empire. And the reason why is the Turks were constantly raiding into Europe. The Europeans, the Europeans did not raid as much into the Turkish areas because the Turkish army was stronger or perceived to be stronger. So in terms of peace and quiet, you're probably better there. So he leaves Prague and he crosses the frontier into the Turkish area and he goes to Buda and that's where he spends the rest of his life. The last 12 years of his life, he died in 16, so 1666, 1678. And uh, so it's weird. What is Buda? Well, it used to be Christian Hungary, but then it was taken by the Turks. So what's the Jewish community? Well, it's a lot of Ashkenazim. You got Sephardim there also. Why Sephardim? Well, the Turks are, uh, you know, that's where the Sephardic Jews are. So a lot of Sephardic Jews go for business to Hungary. On the other hand, there were a lot of Jews from elsewhere that moved to Hungary. They're Ashkenazim. So the reason I'm mentioning is, if you're the rabbi in Buddha, in the years I'm talking about, the 1660s and 1670s, you have a fairly unique Kehillah, right? To the west of you is pure Ashkenaz. To the east of you, understandably, is pure Sephard. Nothing wrong with that. But if you're in Buda and a couple other places in Hungary, you're in the belly button in the middle of Europe, and your community is 50-50. So whoever is going to be in Buda is going to be in a unique situation. So here you have, for 12 years, a Litvak from Vilna, who's now the rabbi of a Tzimishta community in Buda. And um, he actually flourished. But I can tell you right now, that he was a Spitz Ashkenaz. On the other hand, he very quickly developed uh, very good relations with the Sephardim, and I'm talking about the Sephardim Shorabonim, and uh, he therefore became a unique figure, very interesting from the historical perspective, in that the Ashkenaz world he knows cold because that's where he grew up. He's the king over there. But now he discovers the rabbis in Constantinople and in Belgrade and in Eretz Yisrael, and a lot of these Sephardish, um, what shall I say, Meshalachim, coming to raise money for Eretz Yisrael and places like that, passed through Buddha because it was a community that had money. And um, otherwise he wouldn't go there. And uh, he talks with them and learning. And he develops a unique acquaintance and appreciation for the Sephardish style of learning, which was distinct, of course, from the Ashkenaz style of learning. And that makes him, as they say before, a unique figure. This is why he tells his grandson, the Chacham Tzvi, to go study in Salonika, like I mentioned a couple weeks ago. Because he understands it's good to know both styles. You get it? It's good to know both styles. And you'll always, it's, it's like telling somebody today, learn a foreign language.
I hope I didn't make an interruption here. Uh, it's always good to know... I hope I didn't skip anything here. It's always good to know a foreign language, right? It's the same thing. It's always good to know different learning styles. And as I said before, he will have a unique perspective on uh, these uh, styles and uh, with sometimes most interesting results. I'll tell you where I'm going with this. Where did I first come across the Shara Fraim? The answer is eh, decades ago in Zevin. What? In Modim Malachim. Uh, how? Uh, actually in Shavuos. Uh, that's one of the things that made me think about doing this now. Why? The Shara Fraim has a very famous Teshuvah Long, there all of his stuff is very long. On Akdamas, okay? And it's like really and Zevin quoted it. And it's really cool. And he gets Shilas from all over the world. One of the things about the Shah Fryam is he got Shilas from everywhere. Uh and he solicited it too. And uh one of them is from v- is from Venice, and I'll tell you exactly why. As I mentioned before, usually in those days, particularly, you had very distinct black and white situations. In this area, it was Ashkenazi Jewry, and it was Ashkenaz, with zero Sephardim. In that area, the other way around. You had Sephardish stuff there with zero Ashkenaz. Nothing wrong with that, right? And so these groups developed their minhagim and ways of doing things, and that group developed the other way of doing things. Okay, great. Um, what happens when you have mixed communities? Well, you don't have many mixed communities, right? Yeah, but you have some. Well, it's true, you do have some. Where would you have them? Uh, well, Italy. Uh, in Italy, you had sometimes mixed communities. And that's okay, provided, you know, you guys do the Sephardish way and we do the Ashkenaz way or something like that. Uh, no problems. Uh, that's how we do it usually in America, generally, isn't it? Uh, if I go to a Sephardish Shul, seriously, you know, I expect them to do it their way. If I go to a Hasidish place, they're going to Dhamma you know, this is fired to the, the Hasidic style. If I imagine go to another place, they daven, you know, uh, you know, you know what I mean, right? We don't expect people to change. But once upon a time, things were a little bit different, and sometimes you can have a clash. And a famous clash has to do with Akdamas. I just want to read you the, um, the, the question, uh, because it's very cool, and like I said, I discovered it in, in, in Zevin, oh, 30 years ago, more, 40 years ago. And uh, I was young, and he says over here, "Hamik shelo hagvil amayla shel shalani b'dershani kach v'nitzia Venice ho irabosi b'deos." It's a city with a lot of different deus out there because in Venice you had Ashkenaz part, um, Italiani, uh, different types of part also. Sarasi batchunos has got a lot of different communities. Aliyde so and so, a relative of mine. Odos divrei ribos asher b'sharem. A big fight broke out on Shavuos. Binyan Apir Akdamas. Shenohagim ho Ashkenazim lomer b'chagashuos b'shas kriyas ha'tarachar pasach harishim shabachodesh hashlishi. The old Ashkenazi custom, which you don't have in your shuls anymore, unless you're like broyers or something, I don't know, which is that you do like this. And I know I've mentioned before when I did the Shagasar, you also had problems with this. Do you interrupt the laning? No, do you do like this? I'll tell you how we do it most of us nowadays. You tell me whether you agree that this is how you do it in your shul. It comes the morning of Shavuos, and you call, you're going to have Delaney, so you do like this, Yamod, so-and-so, Kohen. And the guy comes up. And then before he says Barchov, you start Akdamas. Akdamas, and then after you finish Akdamas, the guy says, Barchov, he goes the rest of the Delaney. So in other words, there's no Hefzik. Uh, that's a yeshivisha style that arose based on a halachic sensibility that you don't want to make a hefsek in the laning. However, the old system, which is in a lot of mafsers also, is you call a guy up, the amot sons of coin, he says, Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem, and he makes the bracha, and then you say, and then the balkori stops and starts doing akdamas. Akdamas, me and everybody responds. And after they finished the reciting of Domus, they proceed with the laning. You know, whatever the Pasuk is. Now, I understand there's a sensibility over there that's a hepsic. So, 
he says over here, "Be'inyan apir akdamus shenogan ashkenazim lomer b'chag ashuas b'chag kriyas atarah achar pasuk arishin shal b'chodesh shlishi b'chadashim mikaru bol levatal aminigahu." And now some people, which were spiring, came to say no. B'tam she'aser lahasei b'kriyas atarah v'rotzim she'yomru kodem kriyas atarah. So over this came a big fight. Im yesh koch b'yadam levatal minig chaymon b'tam aniskar. Do these do these considerations trump the old minhag? Oh no, Mara, shall we say, Shalo Yachul Vatal Minigavasino Akadosha Mashabaritz Hemo, Mishum Alti Tishtorisi Mechum, Fiapsha Hu Negadin, Minhag Okar Aloha. Classic Ashkenazic Shaila sensibility old school. You know, if my Bubby did it, if my Zaidi did it, my Zaidi with the Shach or something like that, if he did it, don't tell me it's Asr. Vizel Loshan Hacham Ashoel. Please answer me. Al Hadin That's the way the guy writes the Shiloh to the Shirefraim. Al Hadin in Hasfardi Apparently they took this to the Basin of Venice. The Basin says you have to do it the other way, not the way you used to do it. You can't make a hefsek. Who the heck is this Basin? There's Sfardim and there's Ma Ravim, which means the basin was composed of a majority of Sephardic Jews, some of whom were what they call Ponentine, and one, the other one they called the Portuguese. The Sephardic. So here in Venice, you had two types of Sephardim. The Sephardim Tahorim, you might say, who ran away in 1492, and then the Spanish Portuguese who ran away later. Are they puzzled on this? Because how can the basin of Venice, which has a majority of Sephardim, Pasco and Ashkenazi Shiloh? And if you allow the Sephardim give him an inch, they'll take an L. Once, once you let them start poskening on Dak Dumbas, God forbid, who knows, they'll poskening on, uh, you know, all the Ashkenazi stuff. Since the Sephardim are a numerical rove in Venice, they'll wipe out the Ashkenazi customs. That's the question of the din. And then al ha-emes, imemes ha Are they actually halachically correct? Ki pishpashti matsasi kolam in hagim ha-kadom Because all the old farms say to do it the way we do it, which is to interrupt the laning. Vizulosam pechad kiminag ha-shkenazim ba-olam. Al-kein laniyas daiti lo-yim koch l'chadish al-batal minag ha-vasinu And finally, v'al ha-sholam l'hashkid ha-mribos. To, can you send an authoritative chua to stop the fights? Because all the big rabbis are fighting like cats and dogs. Nobody can get shalom. And uh, what do you answer? Now, what do you think he answered? He answered the old Ashkenazi way is right. You know, it's quite lengthy. Uh, and, on the other hand, I told you a century later, the uh, Shagasari tried to force it down the throats and mats to do it the uh, more modern, more halachically sensible uh, uh, sensibility way. And, uh, you know, the, it, anyway, that's one example you find in Sharifim. I That's the first one I ever saw from him. Then later on, it turned out, and this is very also typically Jewish, that in Buddha, past Buddha, I keep saying, uh, he ended up having a, a, a funny uh, Shiloh, which which really caused him a lot of Agamas Nefesh, and that was the following, that uh, he, let me put it this way, the city of Buddha had a community with all kinds of Jews, Ashkenaz and Sephardim. But even the Ashkenaz among themselves and the Sephardim among themselves fought like cats and dogs, because that, that is what Jews do. And there are always you know, factions forming in the old days when they had their autonomous co- uh, uh, coercive communities, always factions at least two and usually three and four, because the Schwartz family has their interests, their employees and all this, and they want to shut up their guys in all the communal positions, and the Cohn family has their little mafia, and the uh, Bromwitz family has their little mafia, and you know what I mean, and the, the Friedman family has their ma- ma- mafia. That's how it goes. Um, you know, family interests become very tribalistic. So there were so many fights and what had happened in Buddha is a funny story because 20 or 30 years before the Sharfrim was in Buddha, a Mashalach was passing through collecting money for Israel. 
and they basically said like this, if you're such a big Talmud Chacham, which he was, uh, help us out to uh, write some Takanas to stop all the fights in the city. And he did. And one of the Takanas was like this, you can't elect a rabbi who has any relatives in the town. That makes sense. That way the Freemans can't put their candidate forward, the Schwartzes can't put their candidate forward, the Brahmins can't put their, because you always want somebody who's related to you, you know, by marriage, by, by descent. And this way, if you make a rule that the rabbi, the Av Basin, has to be somebody with no relatives, so that'll, you know, uh, make it neutral. And that's one of the takanas that he made, and it was adopted, or it seems to have been adopted. Well, Ephraim Kohn, our hero, was not related to anybody, so he became the rov in the city. But once he was there, he had a son who he married to a local girl. Immediately, all hell broke loose, because those who didn't like him, and there's always, whenever you're a rabbi, somebody doesn't like you. Uh, I'm not saying that to be cute. I'm saying to be factual. You understand? So uh, it's always like that. Uh, you know, you pass in the wrong way, you tip on me, you, you flatter the wrong person, whatever. And uh, immediately, so yes, you're in violation of the Constitution because now you're related. What? No, they meant when the time of election can't be related to anybody. No, 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 that's not what it meant. It meant that you can have no relatives here whatsoever. And by marrying your daughter to so-and-so. Now, obviously, it's clear to me what happened was like this. The guy had a son. He's the rabbi's son. Uh, I think it was the case. His son, or was it the daughter? Uh, yeah, it was his son married a local girl. So, let's just imagine, you know, I use a little imagination. Let's say it's his son, 18 years old, 20 years old. Eligible guy. The, the son of the rough. So, how many families are stooping around, shaduchamized, to you know, uh, intrigue and maneuver like Jane Austen, you know, that their daughter should be the one who marries the rabbi's son. Something like that, right? Then you have the prestige. So let's say, for argument's sake, there are five eligible girls. And each girl represents a mafia, correct? There's the girl from this family interest and the girl from that family interest. Well, he could only marry one. He married one. He immediately alienated the other. You know, what, my daughter wasn't good enough for you? You know, that kind of thing. And um, therefore, they use that to drive, drive them out of town. These are stupid little businesses. Uh, they weren't stupid. This became a cause celebra of the 1670s, 1660s, 1670s. And uh, every rabbi in the, in the generation uh, who was a big right, post-it right, you know, a Charlotte writer got in on this. If you know your history, the Charlotte this is one of the issues of the 1700s. Uh, you know, can a tacon like this apply retroactively, you might say? Or does it mean that at the time of the election he shouldn't be related to anybody? But then what you basically say, as, as the Shire Fryam writes, he says, what am I supposed to be, uh, islandist or something? You know, you can only marry an old guy. Only somebody should come in and, 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 and be, who doesn't have any children. Uh, you know, and you can't marry a girl locally. But the other guys say, yeah, Nechanami. You know, basically, it's like King Solomon. If you can't marry my daughter, you shouldn't marry anybody from town. Shouldn't marry anybody from town. And uh, all the big fire show, let me put it this way. They, 95% of the rabbis sided with him. But it didn't matter, because the other guys said, no, that's wrong, and we have some rabbis that side with us, and he, and, you know, hawkers, get it? You know, what are you talking about at Shabbos at the Kiddush? What do you, you know, you need Lashon Har or something. This is a major Lashon Har issue. And so, the Sultan does not need a lot to dance around. And this idiotic, stupid stuff became like a huge issue, and tore the community apart for years, until finally, <laughs> listen to this, they were able to get a hold of the rabbi who wrote the Takan in the first place, who was living in Yerushalayim. And he wrote, and he said like this, I just want you to know, I'm the guy that wrote this, and at the t and when I wrote it, I did not have in mind it should work retroactively. Now, as I'm signing with the Shire Fryam. Well, that's like hearing from the horse's mouth. <laughs> you get it? Now, as the guy who wrote the Takana. He's telling this is what it meant. It's, it's like, uh, in, in, you know, if you were in law school, if you can, you know, uh, which, if you're an originalist, I'll bring back the ghost of the founding fathers who wrote the Constitution, and they'll tell you whether or not there's a right to bear arms. <laughs> you know what I mean? Whether, whether you have the right to have a howitzer in your backyard. I'll talk to, to, to you know, uh, James Madison. We'll bring him back. Instead of speculating. And that's how I was able to do it. Well, as I said before, if you look through the Shafran, he basically is is uh, writing and dealing with shilas from all over the place, especially a gunner question, very heavy shilas. 
and he's getting from the Ashkenaz to Spartan, and uh, it's very interesting, his network of contacts. But then, uh, a Magefa hit, like a coronavirus, and uh, it killed out his family. Uh, it hit the family. Now, he had a, a young son who survived, and he writes about this. And he said, I think it killed his wife, and then it killed his son, his older son. And they didn't know about social distancing and things like that in the other. And so they're all in the house, and this one's dying. So the very fact that, that someone's infected in the house, they didn't understand the idea of social distancing. And then the other son got it. Well, naturally, we know from now, modern perspective, they didn't see it at that time. And the Shirefri, who was only in his, uh, what was he, 20, he's 58 plus 8. So 66 years old, not that old. Uh, he was crying. He said, family's dying in front of his eyes, which you can totally understand. This is described in great and passionate length in the introduction to the book. Uh, and he prays to God, take me and not my son. You know, and you can see, it's just a terrible scene. And he dies in the Magefa. He wasn't old. Um, his family stayed in Buddha afterwards. Bad news. Because eight years later, with the Austro-Turkish Wars, the Austrian armies conquered Buddha and killed all the Jews. I told this is the Chacham Tzvi, his grandson was the rabbi that time, and, and his, his family was killed by a cannonball. Uh, so the family had a bad end. Except one son, who, when the father died on his deathbed, uh, he tells the son, I didn't publish anything. Please take all my stuff and publish it. But it's a whole mess. This is a bunch of letters and chubas and this and that and the other. And so what happened is the son creates the safer Shire Fryer. Like I mentioned a couple weeks ago about the, um, who was it, the Mishnah Malach. Sometimes you have literary creations which are not written by the author themselves, but are constructed by a son, a grandson, a successor. And so the son went to a whole bunch of uh, adventures. He leaves um, Buddha and he goes to Jerusalem. Imagine that in those days. Travels through the Turkish Empire. In Jerusalem, he sits and learns meaning he spends a couple of years going through all the manuscripts and things like this, and then putting them some kind of an order. Um, so we have an edited, reconstructed work. I don't, I mean, you can tell when you read it that a lot of it's written by the original author, but you can't ever be 100% sure, because whatever you're reading is reconstructed by the son. After he spent a couple of years talking with the local Zvartish Arabonim, did I get this right? Did I get that right? Look at my father Shiloh. Look at the argument. Can you can you uh, fix it up? So it's a joint product from the 1670s and 80s in Yerushalayim of the rabbi used to be in Buddha who originally is from Vilna. You know, you see what I'm saying? And then once he spends a couple years and puts it all together, then you have to get it physically published. The son then returns with the papers to Europe. I can't imagine even he must have had a treasure chest with him with the papers. If any of those papers would ever get lost by pirates. There was a storm. The ship went down. There's a Gansa story over there. There's a son writes about the great length in the introduction to the Shafran. And the father was always very myrach. The Shafran goes very long. That's his style of writing. It's a little hard to read for that reason, unless you're really into that suga, because he goes through every side and, you know, how would it come out according to the Ritva? How would the whole suga come out according to the Raja? That's the way he likes to do it. And um, then he travels back to Europe in war zones. I remember he was in Italy in this place. And it basically, it took 10 years of, of concert. The son had to be a fanatic to get this done. And he finally got it published in 1688 in, in Sulzbach because he ran across a Yaki who realized the value of the work and gave him, like we would say today, $100,000 to do it right. And that saved the reputation, so to speak, of his father. Then the son could die in peace. So there's an interesting story about this. Uh, now, his other grandson didn't do it, the Chachansi. It's the son who did it. And as a result, we have this uh, very wonderful Sefer, which was recently republished. I bought this, really, a couple years ago. And it's a nice print now, and they did everything well. Uh, it's actually a pleasure to read. Uh, really, it's a, it's a couple years old, Sefer Sharifrayim. And as a historical work, besides the Lumbus, it's very fascinating, uh, because he goes through all kinds of uh, current events, as you can imagine. He lived through stormy times, and he has all the questions about, uh, you know, from Aguda, the Choshen Mishpat, everything along the lines. And 
because it used to be not in the greatest print, I don't know if it was, you know, not so well known. I'm hoping, I'm pretty confident, as a result of a new print, the Shadowframe would be a lot better known. And uh, it's, uh, and it's a fascinating thing, but it turns out he's one of the great post of the 17th century, you know, like one of those heavy hitters. Of course, knowing the base that he was doing all the rest of it, it's not surprising. My time is basically, I'm, I'm actually running, I'm 30 seconds to go, so I'm going to close it down over here by saying, if you're interested in this, make inquiries. If you're interested in what I just talked about today, you can get like this new edition of Shire Prime. It's not an easy read. It's a, it's a fat safer, and you'll find a lot of uh, uh, fascinating information in there. Uh, boy, I have five seconds to go, so have a good day. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.